Basic things like audibility. Uh, could could the proceedings be heard in the courtroom? I mean, we've gotten feedback from volunteers that microphones weren't turned on, so we're passing that along to the court. This is New Thinking, the podcast of the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Rob Wolf, the Center's Director of Communications. Here at the Center for Court Innovation, we are dedicated to supporting, advising, and reforming the justice system. And when we can, we like to talk to people on the podcast who are working to make positive changes in justice where they live. On today's show, I'm talking with two people who run a court watch program in King County in Washington State. The court watch model, as practiced around the country, sends volunteers into courtrooms to observe, take notes, collect data, and sometimes issue reports about what they see. Having volunteer observers in the courtroom keeps courts accountable to the public and improves transparency. But in terms of the kinds of relationships court watch programs have with the courts they are observing, situations vary. Some relationships are more adversarial, some more collaborative. There was a judge in Minnesota who was once so incensed by the presence of court watch volunteers bearing red clipboards that he suggested that the red was as intimidating as a gang color. Court Watch of King County, which is run by the King County Sexual Assault Resource Center in Renton, Washington, takes a more collaborative approach. Its volunteers, bearing their own brightly colored clipboards, focus on observing sexual assault cases, and a significant majority of judges have welcomed their feedback to help make their procedures more comprehensible and less intimidating to litigants. With me today to discuss the program are Laura Jones, manager of Court Watch, and Mary Leskowski, services and outreach coordinator. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer my questions today. Thank you. Happy to do so. So for listeners who may not be familiar with what a court watch program is, can you talk about them generally, and then we can drill down into the specifics of your program? Sure. Thanks, Robin. This is Laura here. Um, so court, watches, court watch programs, regardless of their area of focus, really engage in court monitoring. And, and that's a way to gather information about the courts through observation. And our program focuses on sexual assault cases. So we're observing civil sexual assault protection orders as well as felony level criminal sex offense cases. And with that focus, and by synthesizing the information that we collect and feeding it back into the system, whether by report or individual outreach to people in the system or through the development and provision of resources, our objective is to help to improve and to inform the system response to sexual violence. I think court can also be mysterious and, you know, a formal setting uh, to the average person. And so involvement by our volunteers in court monitoring helps to provide them with a forum to gain understanding about the legal system, and that increased understanding can help to improve trust in the system. How did it come to be that you guys decided that a court watch program would be a good fit, and where did, where did the idea come from? Sure. So this is Laura. And when our program was started in 2010, it was really seen as a way to help to support, I guess, anecdotal evidence about what was happening in court. You know, we have staff that were in court regularly um, flagging things that you know, might be an issue, but the, it, Court Watch was seen as a way to help to uh, verify, uh, substantiate um, those trends. Um, in that way. And and also, I think, just recognizing that, that data is really a jumping-off point for further conversation. So it was seen as a way to help uh, engage more with the system. And what kind of data are you talking about, though? What, what were you seeing? What were the patterns? One of the areas was with the sexual assault protection order calendar and just 
um, because it was relatively new, um, just uh, things about how the process ran, um, what evidence um, was required of parties, and then things uh, like how long cases take, for example. I think that was one where now we're able to have some data to, to talk about how long the case is taking King County. And maybe you could just give a little bit more about the history. It's the order of protection was new, that you didn't have that in these kinds of cases, and that's partly what inspired the Court Watch program. Sure. I can give a little bit of history about that law, if, if that would be helpful. Prior to 2006, victims of sexual assault were really limited in terms of what options they had to apply for civil protections in, in uh, court. And a victim could petition for um, a domestic violence protection order if they had a family or household relationship with the uh, respondent, or they could petition for an anti-harassment order. However, um, one of the requirements of that statute is that there's a course of conduct and that has been interpreted to mean more than one instance. So for the victim of a one-time assault by a non-family or household member, they really had um, no civil legal remedies uh, in these cases. And so that's how the Sexual Assault Protection Order Act came into being. And, and one of the things that we have noticed through monitoring these cases over the last seven years is that it really has filled a gap and that over 90% of the um, litigants seeking these orders would not have qualified for protections under the previous, um, the previous laws that we had. Tell me a little bit about how your program is structured. When I've, the little bit I know about court watch programs is that sometimes they're actually adversarial. People are going into the courtroom, they're watching, they're, they're looking for problems, and they're sort of taking up maybe one might say an oppositional approach, uh, you know, ready to criticize things that are going on there. Obviously, that is part of what you're doing. You're, you're, you're looking for constructive criticism, but I understand that you have a more collaborative relationship with the court, that you've built a relationship uh, that allows you to, to observe and offer input, but people in power are willing to listen and uh, hear what you have to say. Thanks. This is, this is Laura again here, Rob. And as we were starting our Court Watch program, um, one of the things that we did first was to conduct a lot of informational interviews with key system personnel about what approach to take. And we were fortunate to be able to tap into our agency's pre-existing relationship with stakeholders to the system to help identify who those key entities and, and people were to talk to. And as a result of those interviews, and also considering that our agency works with clients whose cases could also be impacted by our interactions with the system. Uh, we determined that the best approach was one uh, that was transparent um, and that we needed to, for lack of a better word, um, market our program. So why should judicial officers buy into our feedback and the information that we were providing? So when we started and when we began sending volunteers into the courts, we sent an introductory letter to uh, the court introducing the program talking about the types of proceedings that our volunteers would be observing, and then how they would be identifiable to the court and what their purpose was. And then as part of this letter, um, our purpose is, was marketed as a way to help to improve the court at no cost to the court. We also gave judges the option to opt in to receive confidential feedback that focused on procedural justice type issues, so accessibility, treatment of parties, courtroom decorum, and the environment, et cetera. I think the largest pro of this approach is that it helps to facilitate collaboration and, and an ongoing dialogue with the courts. 
So that's interesting. You say that you there's an option for confidential feedback. So there's two different kinds of feedback that you give. There's certain things that aren't necessarily confidential, and, and who are you sharing that with? And then when you talk about the confidential feedback, uh, what you mentioned procedural justice. Can you can you be a little specific? Maybe give some examples of the kind of feedback you're giving. So when we're talking about the and this this is Laura too, by the way. <laughs> so uh, when we're talking about um, the confidential feedback, this is feedback that is given directly to individual judges um, who have opted in to get the feedback. And I just want to say that we have 53 judges in King County Superior Court, and 74% of them have opted in to get this feedback. And so when we talk about the feedback being framed in a way, uh, in a, with a procedural justice focus, it looks at things like, basic things like audibility. Uh, could, could the proceedings be heard in the courtroom? I and mean, we've gotten feedback from volunteers that microphones weren't turned on, so we're passing that along to the court. Things like introducing a calendar and what impact that might have for the parties who are sitting there waiting for their case to be called. And, and then I think our feedback, to answer your question of, of not being confidential, I think that is more in the form of the reports that we've done, in the form of um, making recommendations for legislation. Uh, it's helped to inform uh, education and outreach to the courts. Um, so that, that feedback is provided in that way. Well, I guess I want to ask you a little bit more about procedural justice because it's become such a hot topic now in courtrooms across the country, this this growing awareness of how important it is, the experience that litigants have in a courtroom, people are interested, they could find out more on our website about it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, how, how it's emerged in your community as something important and something you're looking for, and particularly why it's relevant in these uh, sexual assault cases. We didn't, from the outset, really set out to frame the observations in this as procedural justice, it's just sort of how they um, emerged over time. Because what we were seeing was that so many of our observations were related to um, how the court could promote greater access for the parties, how they could um, promote information and set expectations, and how they could set up the proceedings in a way um, that appeared more neutral. And so it sort of morphed into this um, procedural justice lens that we were looking at. And it, it's so important in these cases because uh, I think court is an anxiety-provoking experience for most people. And um, when you consider trauma, um, it sort of magnifies that too. Um, and particularly when we're talking about the sexual assault protection order docket, we're talking about pro se or unrepresented litigants too. Um, so uh, it becomes very important to have procedural justice. And so maybe give a little sense of uh, how it works. You said 53 judges. Are all of them potentially handling sexual assault cases? And how do you decide you know, where you're going to go, when you're going to go, and how much information do you need before you write up a report? Do you go to see the, observe the same judge a certain number of times before you uh, write something up? Or is it not really about a specific judge? Are you looking at more um, patterns, cross-the-board patterns? I think when we're talking about the reports and things like that, we're looking at more patterns and trends of behavior. The way that our court is structured, not all of the judges are hearing sex offense cases at any time. We have different rotations, um, but they do, you know, over the seven years, there have been judges that have been on a different rotation that have then rotated to hearing our cases. And 
maybe we can share a little bit more about um, how we identify proceedings that our uh, volunteers will be attending to. Hey Rob, this is Mary. So every day I review all of the court calendars. We have two superior courts here in King County, one in Kent, Washington, and the other one in Seattle. So I review the calendars on a daily basis and identify the sexual assault cases, and then I assign them out for volunteers' shifts for the next day. Do you have people literally every day going out and observing? Is this a, is this a, a I mean, is it that regular? It's about that regular. We have volunteers who are at both courthouses Monday through Wednesday, and then also all day on Friday as well. Your volunteers, like who are your volunteers? Where, where do you find people who, who can do this, who want to do this, and how do you prepare them for, for this kind of work? This is Mary. So our volunteers are kind of split 50-50. Half of our volunteers are college students or graduate students. We have a handful of law students in the mix as well. And then the other half are either working professionals or recently retired adults. And I think we're fortunate in King County that a lot of our large businesses encourage a lot of community stewardship. And so working professionals are encouraged to volunteer in the Seattle community. And so we've been able to get some really great people on board. It's a pretty extensive interview and application process. We are in the very fortunate position that we have more volunteers who are interested than we have shifts available. Once they complete the application process, they go through an all-day, eight-hour training. And then subsequent to that, we do about a four-hour first shift orientation at the courthouse. And then we provide ongoing debriefing, feedback, and training opportunities through the King County Sexual Assault Resource Center. Can you just sort of paint a picture for me what it's like when a volunteer goes in the courtroom? Are they alone? Do they usually go as a team? Do, you, do they have certain forms? How do they record their observations? Absolutely. So depending on the volume of volunteers we have on any given day, we could have one or more volunteers observing the same hearing. They all come to court carrying the same signature bright yellow clipboard. We refer to it as our calling card so that court staff can identify who our volunteers are and know that they're associated with our court watch program. They record their observations using forms that we've filled, that we have prefabricated for them. And we've designed the forms to follow the flow of each hearing to the best of our ability. And then they have an opportunity to provide more kind of narrative answers at the end of the forms after they've collected the data that we've requested of them. Then they type up their notes and observations and send them to me for review. And then they get entered into our database and our judicial feedback forms. So there's no pretense, there's no secrecy nope. here. You're not like a secret shopper. Going Absolutely in. not. No. It's, it's clear who... <laughs> That's part of the transparency that Laura mentioned earlier. All of our volunteers carry these neon yellow clipboards, so everyone knows who they are and why they're there. Can you highlight for me some of the um, some of the milestones, some of the achievements or impacts you feel the Court Watch program has had in terms of uh, informing the way the court system approaches these cases, or or in terms of legislation or policies? Sure. Yes, and we're just kind of coming off a big milestone. Um, there was um, some new legislation that was passed earlier this year related to the Sexual Assault Protection Order statute, and um, Court Watch was very much involved with um, making recommendations, and this was around uh, how long orders could be granted for and also um, burden of proof when um, 
a petitioner was trying to get the order renewed after, when it was about to expire. Another example of legislative work was um, in 2013, we have a checkbox on our court monitoring form about service of process, and what we were seeing was in about a third of the cases, um, service of process created an issue, and this resulted in cases either being dismissed, the cases sort of being continued in perpetuity, or um, victims dropping out of the process because they just couldn't keep taking time off of work to come to court to get their, their order granted. Um, and so with that data that it was an issue in a third of cases, we um, partnered with our state uh, coalition of sexual assault programs and, and helped to lobby for uh, change of that statute. So now there are um, alternative means of service available to victims of sexual assault. And just by service of process, you mean? Yes, thank you. <laughs> how somebody gets notice of a lawsuit or a suit against them. So how they get the notice and the petition and other legal documents. As you look at the data you've collected over these last seven years, have you seen, have you seen a trend? Have you seen improvements in certain qualities or characteristics that you're measuring? I mean, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about, I mean, some of the legislative changes that helped um, to promote some of the, the important changes in the process. I think where we've also sort of been fortunate is that our state has um, a gender and justice commission here. And so that has been a great forum to provide some of our information and feedback um, that has resulted in increased opportunities for judicial education and also um, resources for judicial officers. Um, in 2013, the the coalition uh, was responsible for putting together a sex offense bench guide, and that is currently being expanded now. So I think there are just a lot of opportunities to provide, a lot, increased opportunities to provide uh, more information. So are you saying the data you collected helped inform the creation of the bench guide? Yes, and, and has been incorporated into different sections of that bench guide as well. Well, thank you so much, Laura and Mary, for taking the time to answer my questions about your Court Watch program. Thank you, Rob. This has been great. Thanks, Rob. I've been speaking with Laura Jones, who is the Court Watch Manager, and Mary Laskowski, who is the Court Watch Services and Outreach Coordinator with the King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, which is in Renton, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Uh, and we've been talking about their what makes their Court Watch program unique and how it works. I'm Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and to visit our website at www.courtinnovation.org. And of course, you can subscribe uh, wherever you, you like to get your, your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.